0: a new song. It's such a blessing. Thank you so much for bringing that to us tonight. If you turn your Bibles tonight, please, to Isaiah chapter 17, we're going to talk about stuff that happened mostly a long time ago in a place far, far away. Seems to have very little significance to us at first blush, but I think as we look at what Isaiah writes, we'll find that Across the years, some 2,600 years ago, what he says is very pertinent to our time, and it's timeless. It's a, that's a pretty big challenge before us. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the word of God is most definitely for you, word for word. And it is for you not just so that you can solve your problems or find something to pique your interest, but it's so that you can know God and know him on his terms. Not only know what he's like and what he's going to do, but truly who he is at the depth of his character, as far as we can know it, being finite, limited creatures ourselves. That's a pretty tall order. The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, present in Genesis 1-2, hovering over the surface of the deep, inspired every word of Scripture through the writers of Scripture. For all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. And since that's the case, it's a fortunate, a great blessing, a boon to each one of us that we have God, the Holy Spirit, living in our hearts to abide forever. Since he inspired the words of Scripture, he's in our hearts and can certainly mediate them to us as our teacher, as our paraclete. And a right adjustment to the Spirit of God involves, first of all, faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you have no access to the work of the Spirit in you, except in terms of the conviction of sin and the clarity of the gospel. But if you're a believer in Christ, then the spirit lives in you to make you more and more like the son of God. And that is such a wonderful blessing to us. And he does it by using the word as we study, as we reflect, as he brings it to our memory. And we need his work in us, which we forfeit through personal sin and which is regained in part when we confess our sins. The Bible is very clear about personal sin for believers. It is not that you're done with the problem and the pressure of sin. It's that you're done with its power over you to control your life if you will not submit to your sin nature. You don't have to give in to its lust. You can walk by the Spirit. In fact, we're commanded to do so in several places. But the solution to personal sin that we've already engaged in is to confess it. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness You know, I'll give you a moment of silent prayer to regain that cleansing fellowship with God, and then we'll enjoy it in God's Word together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, such a tall order before us to open your word to an oracle about a Gentile people, relatives to Israel, and the ministry of Isaiah, an oracle of judgment that you had for them in their time, in their history, that came about, what you said would happen did happen, and how this impacts our lives today. Father, this is a marvel to us that you could take something historic like this, and then address us at the very core of our being. But we look for that work tonight by your Spirit's grace in Jesus' name, amen. You're in the section of Isaiah where you have what we call the book of the nations, or I call it the book of the nations. I probably got that from someone else, I forget who, but it's the part of the the book of Isaiah in this long folio of 66 chapters of the life of ministry of over 60 years of this prophet, who was a speaking prophet, but also, as you know from the book of Isaiah, a writing prophet, you have this collection of folios of all his works. If you went to my office Um, when it's finally set up and out of boxes, and you saw my library, you would see sections of my theological library that would have the collected works of various writers. I have a collection of the writings of Jonathan Edwards, for example, and I only mention that because here we are in Connecticut 300 years later. So that's kind of neat. But what about, um, what about others? The collected works of Martin Luther take up a pretty good chunk of, the, of one's library. Collected works of John Calvin. I have these on digits. I also have, and I'm very fond of this collection, I have the in-print collected works of John Nelson Darby, one of the most prolific writers, it turns out, in English at least. And I would argue, I mean, his, his shelf is a pretty big shelf. Uh, he was a bachelor and he had a lot of time on his hands. Um, he, uh, he wrote a lot, and I have his collected works, and it takes up a big chunk of, sc- of, my, of my, uh, my, my shelf. Well, in the library that is the Bible, the book of Isaiah, this is the collected works that he wrote. And it's not meant to present itself as a flowing narrative. It's all the oracles that he wrote down, the, the prophecies that, he, that God gave him, mostly of judgment, against Israel, the, the northern kingdom, mostly Judah, the southern kingdom, and in this case, in this chunk of Scripture, the surrounding nations. And we've seen God's oracle through Isaiah in judgment against Babylon, and it's a picture of all the nations in the representative nation, the original pagan nation or people of Babylon going back really to the Tower of Babel. And that's the f- chapters 13 and 14. And the rest of it is just all these other nations, and at times he will reference Israel and Judah, as well, among these uh, oracles against the pagan nations. And they're all against. None of these are my people that are getting it right, Egypt. It's always idolatry and arrogance. And if it's not idolatry and arrogance, it's arrogance and idolatry that God is calling out in these people. And you can summarize and say, well, what does that have to do with me? Idolatry and arrogance. I don't know how that impacts my life as a United States citizen in America in the 21st century. Idolatry and arrogance, these things don't have anything to do with us. We're not bowing down to sticks that we've carved. Most of us, now now some people who have immigrated from other countries do this, and it's more and more Depending on what culture you belong to or subculture, it could be a problem. I talked to some, some friends from, from Central Asia who say, no, this is a thing that's still in our culture that there's still idolatry in terms of worshiping physical objects and artifacts that represent deities. And uh, that's not part of your culture here in the West, but that's definitely part of my culture. That's. Some of the fun of going to theological seminary—you meet people from different places and how their people uh, have pagan practices. But we have subtle ways of being idolaters in the West. We don't necessarily—I mean, th- th- paganism 's coming back. Neo-paganism, the Norse worship of Odin and Thor, and all that stuff—that's all coming back in your culture. It started in pop culture and kid comics, and now it's becoming a thing that is um, probably more prolific than we think. Recently, uh, there has been the celebration out in the desert of Burning Man. And most of you probably don't here at Preston City Bible Church here on the very tip of uh, the Long Island Sound, just 15 miles inland from the coast. You probably don't know much about Burning Man unless you're, you're really watching pop culture and learning what people think. But this is a neo-pagan uh, cosmic humanist new age religious celebration of human spirit type stuff. And, and being spiritual without it being the spirit of God. And it's all that kind of the secret realm of, of stuff. And uh, lots of crystals, lots of other, you know, transcendentalism, uh, otherness. And if you don't think that Satan and his fallen angels are fully engaged and holding court in that type of thing, which is g- gathering great steam, uh, then, um, then we're probably a little bit naive. So there's all kinds of alternatives to God made us and wants us in a relationship for himself and sent his son to die for us. All kinds of alternatives in the time in which we live. And you don't have to name the God Molech to be an idolater. And so there is great applicability to us when we talk about what Isaiah is preaching and writing uh, and the inspiration of the Spirit toward these nations. And tonight we're looking at Damascus. We're making some great progress through this uh, table of the nations, this uh, not table of nations, but the oracles against the nations. And um, I, I start with the question of application for you because this can be a pretty rough slog through all these historic occasional things where God said, You're arrogant and you're idolaters, and I'm going to destroy you. You're arrogant, you're idolaters, and I'm going to destroy you. Your practice is idolatry, your attitude is arrogance against the living God thinking it's about you and not about him. And there's a consequence for that kind of idolatrous thinking. And it certainly applies to us in our day. Well, where is Damascus? You might have heard of it. You might say, I keep hearing about Damascus. Again, I want to get around to studying, you know, these places and geography. This is a map from uh, the Moody Bible, uh, Atlas of Bible Lands that that um it just has all the places on it it 's a map showing all the diaspora routes that uh, Israel and Judah took in their various uh, deportations between seven twenty two b c when the Assyrians defeated the northern kingdom in Samaria and and deported them. And then also down to 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians finished off Judah and deported them. These are the routes they took. You can see generally there seems to be a trend that we're going from Jerusalem and uh, Samaria, the land of Israel, where God had his people and said his name would dwell forever. And they're being transported across the fertile crescent. See the crescent? See how it's a crescent? Because it, it's an arch it goes over this fertile crescent, not straight through the desert because you're going to die, but you go through this. There's, you can't see on the map here, but there's water. There's river. Well, you can kind of see the rivers. But you're, you're taking this route that, that lets you water the camels and everything as you go back to Babylon. And so Western Semites, Eastern Semites, God's people, pagan empire builders. That's the story of the nations generally from Genesis 11 on. And so these empire builders come over, and they're God's instrument of destruction and discipline, and they take Israel and the, and, and the southern kingdom of Judah back to, um, to be slaves or, um, uh, you know, second-class citizens or whatever in their various countries, and they resettle them. But what I wanted to show you from this map was Damascus. It's not too far. Damascus is a neighboring place. It's the capital city for Aram or Syria, and I don't really know. I don't recall why we go from Aram to Syria. Why we call it Syria, but it's probably what they call themselves today. But it's the same place as modern-day Syria. But it's a big place. Aleppo is Syria. It's a, there's a lot of a lot of that. A lot of um, land in in the Syria uh, group. And uh, this is Jerusalem and Samaria. This is the Dead Sea. Here's the Jordan River. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus never left this region in all his life, less than 100 miles that he spent his entire life. And, um, and so just to give you a sense, this is really close. When Saul of Tarsus is on his way from Jerusalem with a warrant from the temple to go or from the Sanhedrin to go and uh, grab the Christians by their hair and lock them up and bring them back for trial and likely uh, stoning or crucifixion like Stephen was stoned and Jesus was crucified, when, when Paul is headed to go destroy the early church that these Christians have fled to Damascus, he's going here and he meets the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. So just give you a sense, it's really close compared to other uh, regions in the Bible. And so I just wanted to see where we're talking about. These are cousins. These are um, uh, cousins with Abraham, relatives of Abraham. And so it's cousins to Israel. In a sense, there's a, there's a, Uh, filial connection there um, across the generations. And so God has an oracle of judgment against them and we're going to just kind of parachute into whenever year this was given, somewhere in the 700s, between 730 and 701, somewhere in there. We're going to parachute in and just hear God's oracle of judgment against these pagan people. And we'll just read it and uh, comment as we go. And I promise. I promise that uh, in thinking these things through, we'll find how this directly impacts us. The oracle concerning Damascus, oracle means a burden that God gives the prophet, and it's not Isaiah's words, very important. Oracle means that Isaiah is getting a vision or a message from God that God is in charge of, and Isaiah is the recipient of and the communicator of. He's a, he's a, um, a transmitter station that's a, a reflector. He's not the source of the message. He's just repeating it from, from God to the people that, to whom he was sent. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. It will become a fallen ruin. So we come out with with a big, heavy death knell for the city, the city state. the, The city is representative of the country, Syria. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. And you say... Pastor Dave, last week I was listening closely, and Aror, or however you say that, Aror, is a city in uh, the southern, in Moab. Why are we talking about Aror? And the scholars worry about this. Some will say it was a typo, and they should have written Damascus. But it's Aror. And I want to say it probably is correct. I mean, I'm going to go with the text here and not say we have a misunderstanding in the copies. That, that we're talking about an aggregation of the Gentile pagan nations. Just like Aurora, as we just read in chapter 16, the cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks to lie down in, and there will be no one to frighten them. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom of Israel, who's also allied with Damascus. So he's calling out other countries that are borders with Syria. Syria. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim. So this is somehow sometime before 722 when it took place. That's, that's the Assyrians came and destroyed the southern kingdom and deported all the people or half the people out of the land. And they brought other people and transplanted them into the land. And that's how you get Samaritans. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim. And you say, I don't even know what you're talking about, Pastor Dave. You lost me. Well, this is where we stop the fun run. Everybody, we're going to reconsolidate. We've got people that have already fallen out of the run. And so we're going to turn back around and circle back and get everybody back in line and get back in the run. Now, these are the people of the northern kingdom of Samaria. They're called Ephraim here. It's these people. So generally, Isaiah is talking to Judah, headquartered in Jerusalem. But he just mentioned the, the fortified city of Samaria, of Ephraim, that's Samaria, you can say, which area? This area right here, Samaria. The people of this where the Samaritans, Shamron is the Hebrew word that keeps coming up. Um, I don't want to do that. All right. So going back to our little oracle here, the fortified city will disappear from Ephraim. So, so he's, he has called out the people of Auror over here, uh, Rabbah, uh, you can't. Aurora's not on the map, but it's the, it's it's south of, of Syria, in Moab, and then Damascus, and then Samaria. So it's all neighbors of Judah that this prophet from Judah is speaking of. It will disappear from Ephraim and sovereignty will disappear from Damascus. So this is something to do with that 732 coalition between the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the Syrians, the, the people of Damascus that joined together Rezin and Pekah, the two kings that tried to force Ahaz to join their alliance against Assyria. And God said, no, don't join the alliance. And he sent prophet Isaiah to say that their alliance isn't gonna kill you and unseat you. And that's, that's Isaiah chapter seven. And, and, uh, and so this is in that time, and so you're talking about that northern kingdom of Israel with Pekah and the, um, the, Samar- the, uh, the king of Damascus, uh, Rezin. And so, so he, he puts them together, he lumps them together. These, these cities are going away, and so this is the prophecy that we've already heard that there would be a, an Assyrian destruction of both Ephraim and Damascus. And the remnant of Aram... They will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And I believe that means that all the hardship that befell the northern kingdom and, and, and the southern kingdom and the, uh, and the, um, the, the sieges from the Assyrians, what, the, what Aram and Damascus did to the southern kingdom, the sons of Israel in this case, the southern kingdom when they occupied and, um, and killed a bunch of their troops, and, and laid them low. Uh, that was the glory of the sons of Israel, I think is the interpretation. And so what's been done to Judah was going to be done to these people in the northern kingdom and Damascus. And it is that you don't want to mess with God's kids in this part. That's kind of the principle that seems to be coming out of here. And so often, if you ask the question, why does God, the God of Israel, bring a judgment against these other people that aren't Israel? Why does he have something to say about Damascus or Assyria or these other? They don't worship God. They don't call God their creator or their God. They don't believe in him. Why does God say he brings judgment? They're basically like three things that I've mentioned, two of them. There's a mental attitude problem in the human race called arrogance. Remember, you could all tell me the theme of Isaiah, right? That one of the overriding themes is that which is arrogant is going to what? It's going to be flattened. If everything raised up in arrogance against God is going to be mown down. It's going to be flattened down, and by the same token, everything humbled before God is going to what? Be exalted. That's the that's the upside downness. That's the counter to history and the flow of how humans think about the rich and the powerful and all that. God has a plan, and it's opposed to the arrogant, and it gives grace to the humble. Now. That's one issue. The, the next one is like it is idolatry, the worshiping of false gods. The creator of the universe, the only God who really exists, has a problem with his, those who bear his image worshiping false gods, worshiping the works of his hands as though that those works that he's made, like rocks and sticks, are, are gods themselves. God has a problem with that, and it's why he called Abraham and started over with the people who are the apple of his eye. The whole story of Genesis 12 begins with Genesis 1 through 11, and God's rejection of pagan uh, pagan idolatry among the Gentiles. Man rejects God, so God starts over with the new man, with Abraham. And so so arrogance, idolatry, and then how you mess with God's people. Those that curse Israel, Abraham's kids, the the, the descendants of Abraham, are going to be dealt with very uh, very heavily, according to Genesis 12.3. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you a little are going to be cursed a lot, as Genesis twelve three God's promise to Abraham. And so I'd say these are three of the key reasons why you see God's judgment on a Gentile nation. Now, let's apply it. How does this work in our lives today, the United States of America? It's very popular to go squint your eyes and cross your eyes and try to find some sort of underlying Bible code nonsense of how Isaiah applies to our lives. This is actually, to me, fairly straightforward. We are not and never have been National Covenant Israel at Mount Sinai. That's not what the United States is. God is not making theocracies today. But we who belong to Jesus Christ are part of a kingdom that is coming. And it is definitely a theocracy. But it is not here now. And we're looking forward to it. It's the coming kingdom of Christ. Now, since we as the United States of America do not belong, therefore, to a theocracy, what are we? What are we? We are a Gentile nation. We are a nation that is not Israel. That's the definition of a Gentile nation. And there's an, an interesting thing that happened in history with the founding of this nation, born of England, of Great Britain, the colonies that came together and said, we're going to start uh, fresh and uh, we love everything except the whole monarchy thing and the, um, the way that the, 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 the constitutional government of law in England, well established for hundreds of years is not being applied correctly to us as British subjects. And they said, we're going to start over and build a, a republic that actually reflects the laws that we have in England this country was founded basically by a population that was universally culturally Christian. You could say, well, but Franklin and Jefferson and all these guys, they are some of the intellectuals who were not in many cases Christian, but the population was overwhelmingly Christian. And it's, a, it's an anomaly. You have a Gentile nation that starts as a Christian group. its It's historically Mind-blowing. And that's one of the explanations, I believe, historically, for the strange occurrence that's happened here. The outlier, the bubble of freedom that goes completely counter to the flow of all the horrible uh, tyranny of world history, where the might makes right and the rich oppress the poor. And it doesn't matter what, what the law says, it matters how much money you've got to, to control the courts the idea of this country was a Christian ideal because you had Christians culturally founding it. And so they, and they struggled. They struggled with our theocracy?" You know, the Boston rule that maybe you've done the Boston Freedom Tour. They'll tell you right over there, they would pillory people who had been caught eating lobster in public because it was against the codes of the Puritan fathers, the congregationalists that said, we can't have lobster in public. Imagine not being allowed to eat lobster in, Bo- in Boston. How is that possible? Well, they thought they were under kosher law from the Mosaic law. They thought that was unclean, and that treif, as the Jews call it, that, that unclean food is, uh, is not allowed by the Mosaic law, so we're under the Mosaic law as the new Israel or something. They were confused. There is some horrible confusion about some of these things. And... Um, my point is that it wasn't perfect. There wasn't necessarily really good, solid theology all the time, but there was a commitment to Jesus Christ and a a agreement that God is God and we're not. And so you have this country that is not Israel and it's not like most of the pagan Gentile nations historically, but it's becoming like the pagan Gentile nations more and more every single day. And it has been on that that train for a long time. There have been times when prayer meetings have broken out and God has brought the people back in in an almost miraculous fashion. The the first or the only, in my opinion, Great Awakening. The rest of it's a little bit sketchy. But the first one with Jonathan Edwards was very effective to make the gospel the focus. And Jesus Christ uh, became more and more impactful to the culture in the colonial era, in the Great Awakening, before our country was actually founded and separated from England. Well, my point in bringing you a little bit of American history and a little bit of culture and a little bit of that stuff is to say that when you see God issuing an oracle of judgment on Gentile nations for arrogance, idolatry, and the mistreatment of Israel, there's a direct correlation that you might draw with how he deals with our nation, a Gentile nation, often guilty of arrogance, idolatry, and mistreatment of Israel. And I don't mean endorsing the political machinations of an unbelieving Israeli state. I mean how you treat Abraham's descendants. There is anti-Semitism in the United States. It's rampant. Some in the name of Christendom. Some Christian theologians and scholars will advocate for the Palestinian cause, which is the destruction of Israel. Destruction of of genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I mean, the, the, the people. And so um, I think there's great application for us in these oracles against the Gentiles. And when you ask the Bible the question, if you're not in Isaiah, you're not studying it, you're just kind of like, yeah, I've been reading my Bible here and there. You, you may not be thinking, well, what does God do with Gentile nations? How does he deal with them? Well, he uses them for his purposes. He glorifies himself through that use, and he judges them for their wickedness and he welcomes them to join him. Uh, But Before we just dismiss all the pagan Gentile nations as destroyed and wicked and awful, let me read uh, a punchline to some of this in Isaiah 19. I just took a couple of pages over. In 1924, Isaiah 1924, in that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria a blessing in the midst of the earth, meaning they're all in league together. Israel, the people of God by covenant, Egypt and Assyria, who are not Israel there. It's not all one big Israeli state. It's multiple states that are in league before God. And it says in verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. It isn't just judgment on wickedness. It's the invitation to repent. And that's the book of Jonah, as we've said. That's there, this is actually a major theme in the Old Testament is that God's priest nation, his kingdom of priests would go and bring oracles of judgment that would invite the pagans to reconsider. God has always got the light on. God is always looking for his creatures that bear his image to come to him. And that's Second Peter 3. But he's also righteous and perfect in his judgment. In verses four through six, We have the structure. It's so helpful to find structure in a poem because you could just read poetry to me all day. I won't have any idea. But you tell me that three verses say in that day and then three more verses say in that day and three more verses say in that day. I've got a structure for what he's doing in his song. And that's what happens. Verse four says, in that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. Let your eyes slip down to verse seven. In that day, man will have regard for his maker. And that's a whole theme developed in verses seven through uh, eight. In that day, their strong cities will be forsaken in verse 9 through 11. And then, uh, and 11 continues that. And then chapter chapter 17, verses 12 through 14 is his own thought. So that's how it flows 4 to 6, 7 to. Uh, 7 and 8, 9 to to 11, and then 12 to 14. That's kind of the outline. And when you see that kind of thing where he starts a sentence with, in that day, in that day, in that day, it's just so great because it helps you organize, you know, the pieces of the the rhyme, uh, of the poem. And that's what we have here, which I'm not really showing you much poetic structure, but it, it is there. Now, in that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. When God brings his judgment on, uh, on Damascus and the northern kingdom, the glory of Jacob will fade, and the fatness of his flesh will become lean. That, that's a bad thing. In our culture, we want our fatness to become lean, but this means that they're healthy and they become unhealthy, and that it will be even like the reaper gathering, and standing, uh, gathering the standing grain. So what does that look like? Well, the grain's standing up, and the reaper comes through with a scythe and knocks it all down, cuts it down. As his arm harvests the ears, or it'll be like the one gleaning ears of grain. So when you're gleaning, there's nothing left. It's a very small remnant in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleanings would be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree. Wouldn't you love to go harvest and do the grain thing and the olive tree and shake the olive tree and, and kind of experience what he's describing with imagery that everyone back then knew? These farmers people, these agrarian people knew what all this imagery looked like. But basically, when we go cut down the harvest, there's not much left. We leave a little bit for the poor, and then the poor come and glean, and then there's almost nothing left, so it's an almost total devastation. And when you shake the olive tree, that's to get all the olives out of the tree, but there's always, it's like when you got ice in the bottom of your glass, and there's just like three, three little crushed pieces of ice in the bottom, and you're trying to get it, and it, you can't get the rest of the ice. You have to wait till it melts. That's what's going on here when he says two or three olives in the topmost bound, four or five on the branches of a fruitful tree. Meaning we shook the olive tree and in a good season of harvest with a good crop, a bunch of olives fell out, but, fell out, but there's three more at the top. And we're not going to climb the tree. That's going to be left. So that's what's left after this judgment comes. It's a big picture uh, using farming I- imagery of the destruction of most of the people. And who says this? The Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh. It doesn't say the here in, Greek, in Hebrew, it says Yahweh, the God of Israel. When you read, um, we're in, in Sunday first hour. We're doing a Psalm fifty-one. Slow walk through Psalm fifty-one and the surrounding story of David's life. And when you read Second um, Samuel chapter eleven, David's great sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah and getting his troops to to do it and lying about it and collateral damage, some of his own soldiers die, and oh, you know, it happens. And this horrible lapse in judgment and wickedness, just wickedness from David. He acts like a, like a callous sociopath almost in the story. When you read that, you, you kind of say, most of what happened in this story would not have been known by almost anyone. David's inner circle knew and there might have been some rumors that filtered out, but you know how the political class works. You hear some stories, and you're like, oh, that's, that might be true. There might, I don't know about that. And, there, and there's this cover-up, and, and then nobody really knows what's happening, and you pay off whoever, or kill whoever, and, and then it's, it's not known. It's these big political conspiracies. Well, David's story is completely laid open for the entire world from then on to read about because the prophet, Nathan, writes it up and it's in the records of 2 Samuel. And everybody that cares to read in Hebrew can read the story of David's great sin. And then it gets translated into Greek. So the whole Greek-speaking world can read about it right around 250 or 300 B.C. And then from then on, everybody's speaking Greek. Greek is the lingua franca of the, of the world, the Mediterranean world in that time, which is funny because that means French language. But anyway, uh, and, then, and, then, and then it gets translated into Latin. And then English and everybody's all baffled by David's horrible sin. And this is something that was done behind closed doors that almost nobody knew about. And you kind of feel like we're reading somebody else's stuff. And you also want to think God... Thank you for not having any prophets to write up the stories that are happening behind closed doors about things in my life that I don't really want other people to know about. And I have repented and I have gone to Psalm 51, but I don't need everybody reading the story. And it's kind of not our business, right? But it is our business because it's God's word and God makes it our business. And we're going to see David and uh, spend time with him in eternity. That's going to be interesting, you know, uh, thing. Well... God's bringing all these oracles of judgment on these pagan nations, and the whole world gets to read it. Yahweh in Israel thinks this, and his seer, his prophet, is out there running his mouth about what God's going to do to Damascus. Now, here's an interesting thing. Is he going to do it? Is it going to happen like he said? Well, yes, it turns out that these things that God said would happen did happen, and they happened through the instrumentation of the wicked kingdom of Assyria, Which is a great thing for us, because it validates that God is the God in Israel, and he's the God of creation, and when he makes a prophetic oracle through Isaiah, it takes place, it happens like he said, and there has been a son born to us, a a child born to us, and a son has been given to us, and we are looking for his kingdom just like Isaiah promises, just like Isaiah says in the inspiration of the Spirit. He has been born, he has suffered Isaiah 53 style for us, and we're looking for that Isaiah 2 and 4 and and 7 and 9 kingdom that's been promised to us through him, through Jesus Christ. But these things have happened, just like God said, and I think they give us pause. They let us know that we can trust in the Creator who is there, who judges righteously. They tell us that we... um, as a Gentile pagan nation, we can look for national consequences in our arrogance and our idolatry and our mistreatment of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's kids. And uh, they give us some insight into the goodness of our Creator, who is a righteous judge. In that day, there's our structure, verses 7 through 8. In that day, man will have regard for his Maker. See, there's no more fortified city. And, and the people that are left are shaken like the olive tree. There's just a few olives left on the branch. But in that day, those that are around, they'll have regard for their maker. And his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. Now, that sounds a lot like what's left over after the coming judgment of God over all the nations, the earth dwellers in the tribulation. And it may be a portrait of it. It certainly aligns what we read in Revelation chapter 6-19. through 19. That when Jesus does come back, there is what's left is a remnant of believers who have survived that tribulation period. And they're believers because of the massive evangelism of the 144,000 witnesses of Israel that will go out as believers in Jesus Christ, proclaiming Christ, his death and resurrection. And when they receive their creator, when Jesus comes and and delivers Israel and all of Israel will will be saved, they will look on the one they pierced. But anyway, when, when in that day of God's judgment, people will have regard for their maker. And this is a great principle of life. A lot of times, we don't have much of a prayer life until we're hurting. And then we go after him. The American flags don't come, up, come out until 9-11. And then for a little while, everybody wants to be American and patriotic. We tie uh, yellow ribbons around the, the trees at home and the initial invasions, and the initial deployments of our soldiers, they go out. But over time, well, you know, those, those ribbons fade, and eventually we take them down. And the soldiers are still out, and they're still deploying and going to war, but we kind of fade. But the point is that when we find ourselves in adversity, we get serious about the transcendental ultimate reality things, the things that go beyond the, the sensory perception, like does my life have significance? Try to put your finger on significance. Try to, try to see consequence to your actions. Only in the heart of God who is evaluating our choices can we find eternal significance in our choices and our actions. And we forget that because we get consumed with what's going on around us, with the people in our lives, with the many good things that are blessings that we put, it, put too much of a focus on, and with the things that we shouldn't be involved in that are distractions and only curses to us, and we shouldn't be involved in those things at all. And whether the good things that become idols or the bad things that, that will absolutely destroy you, you get taken in by the world and you forget. And God has a way of getting hold of us. And it's my prayer for myself and for all of you. Pray for me this way. Pray for yourselves. That where I lose sight of my creator, God gets my attention and jars me back. And I don't know about you, but I've been on a pretty short leash all my life. I've been on a pretty short leash and I praise God for that short leash. Can you spend a lot of time away from the things of God without feeling the tug back? I pray that you can. I pray that leash gets shorter and shorter because I love you. But only because God does. And that's a new work in me. In that day, man will have regard for his maker and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. He will not have regard for the altars, the work of his hands. Man won't be looking at his things that, God has, that, that attracted him anymore, nor will he look to that which his fingers have made. Here, the Hebrew parallelism. He won't have regard. He won't look. The altars, the work of his hands, the things that his fingers have made, even the ashram and the incense, incense stands, these uh, articles of pagan worship. And that day, their strong cities will be like forsaken places in the forest, or the branches which they abandoned before the sons of Israel. So now we're back to destruction of the, the infrastructure language. Wasn't that a fun interlude, though, in verses 7 through 8? I'd just like to hang out there. They'll stop with the idolatry and start looking at what really matters. We'll hang out in Ecclesiastes for a little bit and remember that I'm not supposed to be spellbound by life under the sun. It's passing away, it's a vapor, it has no value or lasting significance. But if my life and my choices are connected to the one who made the son, who's beyond the son, now my life has meaning and purpose and definition. It is at this time I'd like to remind you, young men and women, of God's injunction, his encouragement to you as believers in Jesus Christ, his expectations and provisions for you. The Apostle John, and the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit sometime, probably around about 90 to 95 in that time frame A.D., The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. In other words, he's definitely writing to believers. 1 John is written to believers. And if you if you ever struggle with 1 John, remember that's a very helpful reminder. I'm writing to you, fathers. We had little children now to fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men. You hear it? There's a structure in, Isaiah, in, in John's writing. Little children, fathers, young men. And he's going to camp out on the young men. Young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You believers in Christ have, by virtue of your faith in Christ, overcome Satan, the evil one. I have written to you children. He's doing a second lap. Little children, fathers, young men. And he starts over at children. That's structure. He's doing it. I've written to you children because you know the father. I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you young men. Isn't that amazing how his structure is parallel? Because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And then he starts issuing commands. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, that's God the Father who loves you and sent his son for you, the love of the Father is not in him. Don't shirk that. Don't dodge that. No, I don't really love the world. The things that I love that are of the world, I don't really love them or they're not really of the world. Let it sink in. Because otherwise you lose your first love and you lose all the value and significance to your life. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, okay, okay. What do you mean by the world? First John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, that which satisfies my fleshly appetites, the lust of the eyes, that which gets my attention to feed my fleshly appetites through the eye gate, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life that's beyond my eyes to my inner desire for self-importance. It's all sin all the time. The world, as John is describing it, is feeding my fleshly sinful appetites of self-importance. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away. See, John is thinking along the same lines as Solomon in Ecclesiastes. It's the problem is it's transitory. And you have things that'll satisfy your fleshly appetites. And I don't just mean sinful. I mean just the, you know, satisfying legitimate appetites but it's all temporary and it's fading away. And it's great to have a nice meal, but it's not life. The world is passing away and also it's lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So what he's connecting you to is that of eternal significance, that which really matters. And the stuff that we get so hung up on and fixated on, the problems that dominate our attention, they're not eternal. They're they're passing away. Well, we have to go from verse 8 in Isaiah chapter 17. We have to move forward and read all of it. we got to get to chapter uh, 17 verses 12 through 14 uh, because he's going to talk about all the nations focusing on Assyria again, the instrument that will bring all this destruction. But back to the cities that are going to be destroyed. In that day, their strong cities will be like forsaken places in the forest or like branches which they abandoned before the sons of Israel. You know what that is? That's God takes away all the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. You don't have any basis from the world's little goodies to, to be distracted from your creator because everything is desolate and laid waste. That's, what, that's why they're looking at their creator instead of the works of their hands. The land will be a desolation for you have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, you plant delightful plants. Now, this is where we start haranguing all you gardeners. I know who you are, you people that like flowers. You make it look so nice out front and on the sides. All that gardening that happens for the Lord, this is where we start getting after you. No, not at all. This is not uh, saying it's bad to have a green thumb or to honor God as the creator of the plants and how we use them to ameliorate his meeting house, which he's so graciously preserved here for 200 and, uh, 207 years. No, the delightful plants are of pagan place of worship, that they're planting groves that represent Asherah to worship, the false goddess who is the consort of Baal. You set them with vine slips slips of a strange god, so they're decorating the forest groves to represent pagan phallic cult worship. And I'm not going to get more graphic than that. You can look it up, but don't Google it. Go to an encyclopedia or something set them with the slips of a strange God. And that day you plant it, you carefully fence it in, you build your idolatrous little worship sanctuary for, for worship in that day. You fence it in, you, you, you decorate your little place, all this work and service to your idol. And that morning in the morning, you bring your seed to, to blossom, but the harvest of your idolatrous decoration and setting up and planting and caring for your uh, groves of worshiping Asherah, that will be a heap in the day of sickliness and incurable pain. This is saying that you're going to plant these plants to worship in the phallic cult of Baal. That's the context I believe he's talking about. But the fruit that you'll gain from that planting is going to be incurable pain. And so you're going to reap what you sow, sow to the wind and reap the whirlwind. It's a, a, a universal principle of wisdom is that God is, not, um, God is not the God of karma, right? Karma is the result of an impersonal uh, force uh, that controls all things, the source of all life, making the universe tend toward justice or something. That's a counterfeit for what we're actually talking about here. God is a personal, rational, reasoning, righteous, holy, infinitely good being who thinks and wants and chooses, and he makes it so that you reap what you sow. He's actually got his thumb on the scale. He's ruling and reigning in the universe. And, and you get what comes to you, what, you, what goes around comes around because God brings it around. Not because the universe is oriented on some impersonal quest for justice. In fact, the, the ground and perhaps by extension, the created universe is under a curse. Not willingly in Romans 8, but because of him who subjected it in hope. But... Here, um, the fruit of your idolatrous practices is going to be incurable pain. Now, let's zoom out to where this wrath comes from. In verses 12 through 14, he's going to talk about the Assyrians and all the nations embodied by Assyria. He does this device several times in the oracles against the nations. Alas, which is actually in Hebrew, hoy. Hoy, where we get in Yiddish, oy vey. Right? Alas, the uproar of many peoples, meaning there's a death somewhere. The oy is, is, uh, is death language. It's, it's uh, funeral uh, language. The roar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas. So that's, think about the poetic imagery of the roar of many seas from the sound of coming from people. That's military. This is the clank of boots and, and armor and, and horses and all that's coming in a massive army. I don't know, of like 185,000 Assyrians. Right in Sennacherib's day, anyway, the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters, the nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind, or like the whirling dust before a gale. This is all the nations in an uproar, the people's advising a vain thing, and God wins he 's not. Uh, challenged by them. And I would emphasize Assyria because of the language of waters and um, military forces that are God's instrument in punishing both the northern kingdom of Samaria in 722. And before that, um, the uh, Syrians in, I believe, 731, I think, 732, the Syria Damascus. At evening time, for you nations in an uproar against God, behold, there's terror. Before morning, they are no more. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us and of those who pillage us, the lot of those who pillage us. And I believe that this is a reference to the evening time where there's terror and in the morning, they are no more. This is um, that little note in Isaiah 37 where Sennacherib's entire military force was wiped out overnight on the mountains of Israel as God had prophesied in Isaiah 14. And we spent a few weeks looking at the Assyrian crisis and the various places where the Old Testament records it. Again, I I take it that Assyria is referenced here as an embodiment of all the Gentile nations in an uproar against God, and it becomes very personal when Isaiah says, they plunder us, the, the lot of those who pillage us. So what I've hopefully shown you is that there's three things that God is getting after the Gentile pagan nations about. The first one is generally an arrogant mental attitude that fails to recognize that here it is. It's not about us. It's about God. Alan Jackson, uh, produced the, the famous country record, recording artist, produced a, a set of uh, albums over the last several years, last couple decades, of hymns and, and Christian songs that he played in his style, his country music style. Really appreciate those for a lot of reasons. And uh, I've been listening to those uh, Precious Memory CDs for years. One of the songs that comes up on, on these is called It's All About Him. Played it for the kids at camp this year. Most of them hadn't heard it. That's oldies now, you know. But, um, I wondered where did he get that because he's got all these old hymns leaning on the everlasting arms and all these other great songs that, you know, Sweet Hour of Prayer and Precious Memories, all these old, you know, gospel songs. So where did It's All About Him come from? He wrote it. That's the one he wrote. And, uh, and, and it's a fantastic message, and it's pretty simple. And, it's, and, and when you think about what God has done for you and making you, and how fearfully and wonderfully you are made. Think about what he's done in making you new in Christ through the work of Jesus on the cross, giving you access to him. Um, It's easy to see in that frame of mind why God would have a problem with the arrogance of man that forgets him and says, it's about me, and I'm gonna have my way. Everything that is arrogance lifted up in exaltation of self against the glory of God or in competition with it is gonna be laid flat. And that's true of Damascus, that's true of Assyria, that's true of the United States. It's true of all the Gentile and pagan nations, and even the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. You never want to find yourself in a glory contest against God. He's always going to win, and you're going to be laid low. But I'll summarize so much of the scriptures by saying what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Talking to young men after discussing what the elders need to be doing in the local church, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that he will promote you at the proper time. Casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Our Father, we thank you for the oracles of of uh, judgment that we're reading against the nations. Thank you for the, the, the fear and trembling with which we must approach you, given what you've said of yourself and of uh, our position nationally speaking before you as a Gentile nation on record for how we treat Israel on record for how we collectively are arrogant and how we are collectively idolatrous. Father, we know that the collective action is really the action of aggregations of individual choices. And at Preston City Bible Church, I pray that you would constantly remind us that our choices matter to you, and therefore they are eternally significant because they're in your thinking and have been from eternity past. Help us find our significance where it belongs, just as um, the, the, the pagans of Damascus and Assyria missed it. Help us not miss it. Pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.